Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. I have the pleasure of having Chuck Wally. Oh, I'm having an intro here. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. I'm sorry about that. Um, again, this is Marianne Russo, and I have the pleasure of having Chuck Wally as my co-host tonight. Mae Wilkinson will be moderating our tweet chat using the hashtag TCK if you want to jump on and talk to other parents. Tonight has nothing to do with special needs children. Tonight has everything to do with the women and the men that are raising them and the relationships that they have, relationships with each other, relationships with their children, relationships with their coworkers. And um, tonight we are really thrilled to have Dr. Orville Easterly joining us. He's a marriage and family therapist. And um, he's going to just give us some tips and tools to use. Um, so, you know, whether you're having marital difficulties, co-parenting issues, um, or struggling with your child's relationship, Dr. Easterly is here and he's going to be answering your questions. Um, you know, I saw something to, uh, this week and it just made me laugh and it made me think about tonight's interview. Um, you know, and it's a joke that goes out go, that I've heard and it says marriage is like a deck of cards in the beginning all you need is two hearts and a diamond by the end you wish you had a club and a spade <laughs> so tonight uh, we're going to see if we can get rid of the clubs and the spades and get back to the hearts so um, Chuck I'm glad you're here and welcome Dr. Easterly thank you it's a privilege uh, to be with you Marianne and Chuck well Great we're, we're really we're really happy to have you here because, you know, on on two fronts. I mean, I think that special needs parents do have it a little bit harder. There's additional and different stresses on the relationships. But, you know, I think it's important that, um, you know, they also understand that there's really no perfect marriage or relationship out there. And even the best of relationships, um, you know, they have their hills and valleys. It's, you know, it goes up and down and, you know, it, it's it's part of working it out. Um, you know, some of the things I wanted to discuss with you is that I think that many people make the mistake of thinking that if they could change their partner, they would be happy. And in fact, from reading your writings, it's, it's that they need to change themselves. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what is positive change? Yes, Brianne. Uh, one, of the, one of the dirty tricks that nature plays on us is that we're not attracted to every person of the opposite sex that we meet, but there are some people that we have a little bit of attraction to, and then it goes up from there to that that, that real powerful attraction. What we've found is that the attraction that draws us is a hormonal uh, element that uh, draws us together and creates a um, an intoxication that's probably the greatest intoxication known to humankind. But in that intoxication... Of, that, of the stirring of our, our erotic hormones, we uh, create the other person as we really want them to be. The interesting thing about this this, dy- this dynamic situation is that we literally can almost read each other's mind, and so we reflect and become, in essence, what the other person wants us to be. And this is wonderful as long as that hormonal attraction lasts. But then in time, after the relationship has been established, that hormonal stirring, that hormonal attraction begins to decline, and we then emerge as we really are. And this is when we think that somehow the other person has deceived us. Unfortunately, uh, many times they're already in the marriage at that point. 
and trying to build a life and and feel like that that they um, they really don't know the other person and begin to want to try to change them. And this is where the uh, the, the the root of, of all the problems arise. The the fact is that if I want the people around me to change, there's one way that I can do it, and that is I must change. What we've learned in behavior is that when when we change, the changes that we make force everyone in relationship to us to change. This means that they may get out of the relationship, but that's a change. If they stay in the relationship, then we must we must adjust to the changes that the other person has made, whether those changes are positive or negative. So we have a, a lot of power in the way that we change. So when our mate is not who we think they ought to be or behaving as they as we think they ought to be, we know that if we make some of the, some positive changes, then that will impact how the relationship works. Now I don't want to lecture, but just to give you a little background on that particular issue. Well, how does a person make a change? Because, you know, people always tend to look at the other person's faults and not so much see their own. And it may not even be a fault. It just may be differences in the way people are. So, you know, how can – and really, if you think about it, you have to live with yourself. So you have to find a way to make yourself happy and to like yourself. So how can a person who's just really down, really struggling, how can they make changes? The – the element of of changing has to do for, uh, do with our perspective upon what we think life ought to be and what life actually has become. And here's where we have to be more we have to be more pragmatic. If we're in a difficult situation, if we are looking at the negative of that situation, it's like looking into the the, the headlamp of a car. All we can see is the glare of the light. On the other hand, if we can back away from that, and instead of focusing upon the negatives that are in the relationship, if we can begin to focus upon the surrounding positives and bring our focus in there, the negative tends to come into balance with the positive. And now we can see the whole in, uh, in, in its context. This then gives us an opportunity to use our creativity, our drive, and our commitment to to adjust so that the negative doesn't overpower the positives in the relationship. That kind of change the individual can has to make on their own. Instead of looking at what is wrong with the other, other person, they begin to look at what is right in the overall relationship and put their emphasis there. And this then empowers them to make adjustments, which comes under what I talk about in the the rules uh, of life's road, where I talk about accepting what we cannot change by changing how we think about it. Uh, and I can give you some information on that if, if you'd like to do that. Sure. All right. Uh, one of the principles, uh, by the way, I, I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. This means that we, in my uh, discipline, uh, believe that we are the way that we think. We can't be any other. So if there's something wrong with my behavior and my feelings, I know something. Uh, these are symptoms, they're not causes. 
that the cause is the way that I'm thinking. Another thing that we know in my field is that we have the power to change uh, how we're thinking. Like right now, we're talking about marriage and relationships, but we could start talking about my favorite subject, and that's fly fishing. And I could get pretty excited about that and perhaps stir some in interest on your part. And all of a sudden, we're thinking about fly, fly fishing or the next football game. So we have the power to change how we think and what we think and what we're thinking about. So this this ability to to change our thinking it enables us to back away from whatever the issues are and and think about it in, in a different way. There are, are some things in life we can't change. If we're unwilling to accept these things that we can't change, then we become a prisoner of them. On the other hand, if I recognize I, I can't change the situation, but I'm able to change how I think about it, then I'm able to accept it in the context of my life. I, I've treated a number of people who have ended up with some horrible disabilities due to accidents and surgeries and so forth. As long as their focus is upon their loss and what that's doing to their life, they lose they lose track of the greater aspect of their life, of the assets that they have. If I can get them to accept the fact they cannot change the disability, but there's so much more of their life that they can focus upon, then they begin to change how they think about their disability and they're able to become, instead of a prisoner of it, they begin to make an asset or, or a useful aspect out of that. So, Dr. Yeah. Sir, I have a question about that. Sure. Um, I subscribe to that personally. Um, how can we, <laughs> this, I don't know, perhaps this is not the right question, but how do you... Um, how do you coax people into thinking that way, into in, in a positive way? Well, one of the, one of the things that I ask a person is, do are you are you satisfied with the way your life is turning out? Uh, and of course, in when they're stuck in a situation where they can't accept something in their life, then they 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 will say, well, no, I'm not. And I said, well, if you're not. If you're not satisfied with the way your life is turning out, then I, we know that this is a result of the way that you're thinking about your life, which determines how you feel about it and how you behave toward it. Are you willing to try a different approach? And and if I can get them to think that, well, there's, there is a different way to think about this. For instance, I had a young boy uh, who was junior high. He was a, a very enthusiastic about basketball, but he went in to have a – Routine surgery done on on his spine, where they put a rod down the spine to uh, stop a scoliosis, and uh, but something went terribly wrong, and he came out a paraplegic. Uh, well, this this of course for a young young man was was just devastating, and it seemed like life had stopped. Once that I began to get him to think about what he could do, and start down that path of of doing these things that were within his power. He was able to turn his life around and and has become quite an, an accomplished young man. Now this is all about him changing how he thought about uh, the, the situation in his life that he could not change. So it's it's getting the person to recognize they can think differently about something, and then find 
an avenue where they are going to focus their lives and to expand into that area. And there's many, many uh, examples of this in, throughout athletics as well as other aspects of life. So, again, it's, it's getting the person to recognize they can change their thinking and change that thinking and then to begin to build their life around this new way of thinking rather than being, being defeated by what they lost to be able to capitalize on what they, what, what they have remaining in their life. Dr. Easterly, how much of this do you think is expectations? And how much of it do you think is control? Because, um, you know, I think a lot of times people just, everyone has expectations of what they thought their life would be or the way they thought a certain situation was going to go. And everybody likes to have control over situations in their lives. And, you know, I wrote about this a long time ago. But my father told me when I was a teenager once, and he said to me, expect nothing and you'll never be disappointed. And I thought, that's like insane. But as I've gotten older and I've put it into context, it really does make sense because I think expectations really can uh, wreak havoc. And they really can, Marianne. Um, expectations come from a natural bent that, that we have at, when our little heads pop into this world at birth, and that is we feel entitled to certain things. And if I were to have you to take a few moments and write down five things that you feel entitled to, most of us could knock those five out very quickly and add a number to it. But what we've learned in, in in my field is that we are, in fact, entitled to nothing. You know, when our little head popped into this world, it seems like we would be entitled to having somebody there to catch us. But there are many children who, who do not have. And, and then we think, well, if we make it into this world, sure, we're entitled to have somebody there to take care of us. But there are many who do not. Uh, when our little head and body popped in this world, it wasn't stamped anywhere on it that this child is entitled to A, B, C, D, and E. There's nothing stamped there at all. So our, our task is to overcome the odds in order to, to survive. But here's the way expectations work. If I expect, if, if I feel entitled to something, then I'm going to expect to get it. And if I don't get it, then I have a righteous rage or anger in me. So take a look at that. If if I get rid of if I get rid of my entitlements where I recognize that I'm I'm entitled to nothing, but I have an opportunity to overcome the odds and thrive in this world, then what do I expect? I, I expect me to overcome and that's it. So what do I have to become angry and raged about? And so what I teach my, my angry people is that if we can get rid of your entitlements, we can get rid of your expectations and then what are you going to be angry about? Then you can take that anger, that, that energy from that anger, and focus it on overcoming the odds that will prevent you from accomplishing anything that you could otherwise have and move on to not only overcoming the odds but to, to thriving. So your, your father was right in a sense that if you have expectations, you set, your, you set the people in your life up to fail you and you to be disappointed and bitter. Uh, there's right. only one one reasonable uh, expectation, and that is for you to expect yourself to overcome the odds. And that's, there's nothing easy about that. And, you know, that also, you know, what we're, we're talking about here, we've been talking it more on the scale of a relationship. But, Chuck, um, you know, I think that a lot of, well, for, you know, this generation, and, you know, listen, I have great teenage kids, but there is a sense of entitlement um, going on. And, for you sure. know, 
the expectations also I think are we can we can discuss the same things you were just talking about for our children that you know parents need to set reasonable expectations of their children and you know that it really is very detrimental to the kids if the expectations are are too high so um you know let's start talking a little bit about positive parenting um you know and how we can um you know just like you know in our house when somebody's just in one of those negative modes um you know, a few weeks ago I said we're having a day of no negativity. Mm-hmm. Nobody is allowed to say anything I negative. Like no, what, no matter what you're thinking, you're going to have to think before you talk. And if it's negative, either don't say it or think of something positive. And if somebody says something negative in my house, we always go womp, womp, which, you know, lets them know, <laughs> you know, we don't <laughs> want to hear that. But, um, you know, as far as far as the positive parenting, I think that a lot of parents get very frustrated and um, I think that what you've been telling us has to apply also, that the parents have to change themselves and not so much need to change the child. Absolutely. And, and here's where the the debates come uh, on on what is proper parenting. I happen to come from one school, and I highly respect it, but I also respect those who, who uh, are from a, a very different line of thought. Uh, but we we parents do have have certain ideas as to what we think our child ought to be. Uh, unfortunately, when that child came into this world, uh, he didn't come in with that script in mind. Uh, we have to get to know this child and what this child is trying to do and be able to, to teach and mentor that child. There's a huge difference between uh, training a child like a drill sergeant would train his soldiers and being a, a teacher and a mentor to enable a child to to discover their, their talents, their abilities, their interests, and to encourage them, guide them, inspire them to to rise to the level where those talents and abilities are developed uh, in a manner that enable them to become what they could uh, and what they're designed to be able to do. So the, the approach in, in, in parenting uh, has to begin with uh, the parent recognizing that we have the task of mentor and and uh, and teacher, uh, which means that there are uh, there's certain skills that we have to teach the child, and there are certain courtesies and and uh, other social functions that we have to in, uh, enable them to to learn. But we have to step back and and let them tell us how they want to develop their life, and then become that kind of a mentor to enable them to do that. And we can say considerably more about that, but rather than just get into a lecture, let me just, if that answers your question to this point. Well, you know, I like the fact that, you know, when we spoke um, in the pre-interview conversation, and, you know, you said parents need to teach, not intimidate, and they need to discipline, not punish. And um, you spoke about the effect of spanking or hitting um, on the mind of a child. And, you know, I think that sometimes this is, this is where parents really need to do their work because it's a lack of self-control. Yes, um, in uh, fact, I completely uh, agree. All right. Go ahead, Chuck. I didn't hear you. Uh, I, I was just agreeing with Marianne. Yeah. Uh, and here's here's where gaining some knowledge as to how we human beings come into this world and how we how we're wired. We survived. We Homo sapiens survived where some of our cousins did not. And one of the reasons we did is we we learned we learned to react to intimidation and to danger 
in time to to escape it. So early in our in our survival as a species, to react to intimidation and danger very quickly and defensively, so we would either run for our life or fight for our life or plead for our life or play dead or whatever in order to to survive. That very instinct to to react in our in our setting now becomes very detrimental. So if if I want my child not to hear me, not to learn from me, but to learn, as far as what I'm trying to teach them, but to learn to survive around me, what I want to do when I am uh, angry or disappointed or uh, with the child is to strike the child. If I strike the child, then immediately their instinct to survive kicks in, and instead of using this frontal lobe where we're able to reason, we we go right back to that knob on the top of our spinal column, which is the old brain, where all of our instincts to survive are, and the child will run for their life, plead for their life, you know, play dead, whatever they have to do to, to get out of that situation, they will not be in a position to really learn from us. So if I want my child to to hear me and to learn from me, then I don't want to put them on the defensive. If my child is not behaving as I think they ought to, what I want to remember is that that child is behaving as a child thinks that he ought to. The, the little child is not just trying to rebel against us. He's only, he has his own little agenda of, of, of conquering this, this strange new world that he's in. And, and so if I, if I approach the child and recognize that the child has its agenda, and I, I then take the time to get the child's attention so that I can give some instructions in a way that they will, will, will be able to hear and to follow, then mentor them in doing the behaviors that I want them to do, then I have a chance of getting the child to think. Now, here's the big difference. If I'm a drill sergeant, I want to extinguish independent thought and get the soldier to respond immediately to commands. But if I want to raise my child to be able to think for themselves, then my goal is not to extinguish independent thought, but to encourage them to think and to debate with me so that I can, if I can get them to think, I can get them to listen, and then if I win their confidence, I can get them to follow my mentoring. Now, this is a slower, much slower way to get your child to obey you, but in the long run, you end up with a child who can think for themselves and choose to do what is right rather than to just follow what the, the pressure of the moment is bringing upon. Now, again, that's a complicated lecture. Please answer, ask questions or whatever you need to do so that I'm making myself clear. So, yeah, and I, I agree with that. And I think the, the other part of that is you want your child to make the correct decisions for the right reasons and not because of fear of getting caught. And I think that's another uh, negative impact of, uh, you know, things such as corporal punishment. Yes, and, 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 and this is something if, if we as parents hold clearly in our mind that our, our children from the time that they are toddling about begin to choose, uh, to choose their heroes, begin to choose the people that they want to emulate, uh, and that goes right on throughout most of their life. Uh, and so... I, I want to keep in mind that that and and, and this, this speaks to one of the divisions that I deal with 
when I'm dealing with with exes who do not agree on how to how to raise the children. One of the things that that I I stress to the the parent who's seeing me is don't compete with your ex for how to discipline the child. You stand alone on that. You're, you're one your one influence on the child that's powerful. The parent is the other, but there are also many more. So your child is going to be constantly comparing you with with the other influences around them. So when the child is in your home, you have your relationship rules, you have your house rules, you have the, the, the expectations that you have for the child as far as carrying out their functions and responsibilities in the house. You parent that child the way in your home the way that that you think is right, the ex is going to do the same thing in their home. Then outside of the two homes, the child is going to be exposed to their friends, family's way of doing things. They're, they're heroes on, on the media and the, the coaches, their teachers, whatever. So that child has to sort out who, who that child is going to become. The ones with the most powerful influence are the ones who are going to have the greatest impact upon the child. So it isn't a competition. What I want is for my child to think about what they're doing and why they're doing it and what do they know as far as the people they admire, the outcomes of the decisions that they're making. Um, you know, before we go, go, I'm going to go back to the exes, but, um, you know, when we were talking before um, about, you know, hitting a child, spanking a child and, and that type of thought, you know, to me it just always seems like it's an inability to put in that exhausting work it is exhausting to be positive with your child it is exhausting to be compassionate when your nerves are shot and but you know you need to mirror it but i think you know i like what chuck said and i think i want to add to that that um you know this isn't a sexist issue i mean for a, a a father to hit a daughter is sending a very strong message that men are allowed to hit them and that goes the same way with the boys, that they'll feel that they're allowed to get a, a smack too, and it is just not appropriate. There is never a reason to strike a child. Um, but, you know, when you have the, going back to the exes, I mean, try as you may. I mean, the expectations are out the window now. Um, you know, you, the, the, the ship is sunk. Um, and a lot of, I mean, it is brutal. It is nasty. And these kids are getting caught in the middle. So, yes. you know, how does a parent that has this relationship and, you know, let's just assume that the ex is being difficult or intentionally creating problems. I mean, how do they handle this? You can't compete with the influence that the ex has. The ex may be drinking, maybe using drugs, maybe uh, lax in supervising the child when, when the child is with them. We want to take every step that we can as far as the courts are concerned to get to get a, a to get some standards set where there's some accountability. But the worst thing that, that a, a, a parent can do is try to compete with the influence and the power that the other parent has. And that's why we want to put the emphasis upon uh, parent the child the way that you choose to parent them when they're in your home and, and under your supervision, and the child will will run their comparisons. They will run their tests, uh, and, and they, they have to decide as to what they are, are going to do. The parent who has the best uh, chance to influence the child in the way they want them to go is the one who will do what you were saying, Marianne, and that is 
do the, the exhausting work. Now, it is exhausting, but if you stop and weigh them out, <clears throat> which I, I have many parents do, <clears throat> so how much time does it take to yell at the child, hit the child, you know, go, go through all of, of, of that, that kind of trauma, and the aftermath of that, how much energy, how much time uh, does, that, does that take to recover from that if, indeed, there is a full recovery? That, that, that is not a shortcut to get anywhere. It, it, right. it requires so very, very much. But when we are tired, when we are exhausted, and when the child is being difficult, our anger, our expectation, our sense of entitlement comes up. And one of the things I teach parents is that as much as we would like it otherwise, we're not entitled to our child behaving. We're not entitled to our child obeying us. We're not entitled to our child uh, respecting us. Uh, they, they, when they came into the world, there just was not that stamp on there. That little child has, and that growing child, has a mind of their own, and they're determining what they're going to do. Uh, and so if I get rid of that expectation, then I can deal with my exhaustion, with my tiredness, and I have to have a quick talk with myself. Am I going to <clears throat> spend my energy in all this hostility and all this aftermath, or am I going to stop the world for a bit here and go through the steps of getting my child to think? One of the things I teach my parents is that the goal of, of, of parenting and correction or, or, or of discipline is not to get the child to do a complete task. What I want to do is to get the child to think about the fact that this is their task to do and that I am requesting them to do it and the house rule says that they are expected to do it and to get them to start doing it. If I can get them to think about it and to start doing the task, the discipline is completed right there. Now, they're, they're not going to perform the way I want them to the first time or the tenth time, but if I stay with that, they are going to learn what is right and the, and the consequences of doing wrong as well as the rewards of doing right. It takes time. But the outcome is you have a child who will think about what they're doing rather than a child who is, whose, whose thought processes are extinguished his independent thought processes are, are extinguished, and he learns to react to the world rather than to act upon it. Go ahead, Chuck. I was going to say the coping tools that you give them are going to affect all their relationships in their life. But, Chuck, what were you going to add? Well, no, I was just agreeing. Um, I, 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 um, I do have a question uh, when we get back to the X's, though. I have a, oh, we're uh, on the X's. Okay. <laughs> but a boom. Um, in terms of you know, working with your uh, with your uh, ex spouse, and um, when you're in a situation, you know that many of us have found ourselves in, where we have a special needs child, and uh, one one parent has one way to handle it, uh, another parent, you know, is has a completely different way they want to take or or completely let's say they're completely ignoring the problem and they think it's not a problem at all it's just you know the kid needs to be with you know with me more or whatever how do you go about handling that that kind of situation 
the first stab check that I encourage my parents to do, and I have a, a situation I'm dealing with right now that I'll use an example without without giving away any confidentiality. But one of the first things I encourage them to do is don't waste your time competing or trying to convince your ex. You know what you think is right for this child. When that child is under your supervision, you do those things with that child. Now, being a special needs child, that that doesn't doesn't exempt them from having to make choices uh, with other authorities and other people in, in their lives when, when they're out when they're outside of of your supervision and, you, and your care. So they're going to have to do that. But when they're with you, you want to follow through with what you believe is the right thing to do. For instance, I have a, an aut- autistic young man uh, who's in, in junior high. Uh, one parent just thinks that there's nothing that they can do, uh, and they just basically uh, uh, warehouse the boy, to, not spending a great, great deal of time with him. The other parent has discovered uh, a horse therapy, and this boy has responded to that just tremendously. But the other parent uh, can look at it and, and not see it and, and not right. follow through on it. And so the frustration is, well, he's only getting his horse therapy every other week. So, well, yes, that's true, and that's unfortunate. I wish we could arrange otherwise, and we have tried and failed. But that the, when the child is with you, let's be very faithful in that, as well as in everything else that we're doing to enable this child to to learn about and understand the, the their, their special need and how how to cope and and, and uh, compensate for it. Because the child is going to ha- is going to be like every other child. There are, are there are positive situations, there are negative situations that they're in, and we want them to learn to deal with both. I wish we could get both parents to agree on every aspect of the discipline and the care of the children, and especially with these special needs children. But if we only have one, we've got something worthwhile, and we want to major on that. Okay. Um, Dr. Eastley, we have a question on the chat. Um, okay. We have a parent who has a, a seven-year-old um, child, um, a child with special needs, and they get violent, and they get violent towards the parent. Do you have any tips on how a parent would deal with a raging or violent child? You know, there's there's two there's two parts there. Let, let's first of all take the child who who isn't a special needs or an autistic child. Uh, the child in throwing a fit is. Has, has, has perfected something that they started learning from the time their little heads popped into this world, and that is how do you manage the people around you? And they go from everything from this this most irresistible charm to these these ear piercing, uh, nerve piercing fits that they throw. So I want to look at this child at age seven and watch their behavior and recognize that this child has perfected something that they think works with me, and evidently it has worked, or they wouldn't wouldn't have perfected it to this level. So I want to step back and think, okay, this, I am susceptible to this. This child has learned to manage me with this. I need to change so that this kind of behavior doesn't get the child what the child wants. Now, where the child is, is, is violent and hits, hits the parent, then there needs to be to be steps taken so that the child can't do that, but to allow the child to run their fit without having any positive results to it. 
our children are very pragmatic, and that this, this includes our our special needs children on on many levels. That they they will give up something that doesn't work in favor of something that does work. And so, as a parent, I want to offer something that does work, but it's going to take some time for this child to extinguish this concept that they have of the violence and the anger and the hitting uh, to get to get their way. Uh, and to accept something that's different from that, so I want to commit myself to to this 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 task and stay with it with a very careful plan to implement the kind of change that I want the child to make. There's no shortcuts whether the child has special needs or the child doesn't have. There's no shortcuts, uh, but if I do the work now, it's going to make all the difference when it comes uh, to that child hitting teenagers and thereafter when things can really get bad. And to the parent asking this, I mean, we we talk all the time about, um, you know, the importance of teaching calming techniques and, um, yes. you know, that there's nothing, that there's no better gift you're going to give your child than to teach them how to calm. So, you know, if that helps you at all, every, every kid calms differently. But um, if you can find a way, there's a book actually that I'm reading right now, the uh, relaxation response is fantastic. But, um, yeah, you know, and on that, Marianne, uh, mm-hmm. what, there, there, there are four ways. Well, there are many ways, but there's four major ways that we communicate with everybody around us, and that begins and focuses on the special needs child as well as any other child. And that is our attitude and spirit travel instantly together, and my body language animates and expresses the attitude, spirit, uh, uh, and and then come my words. And so, if I recognize that that I don't have to be pulled into the trauma of this child, and I can be calm, and I can be patient, uh, that lays a foundation that, that goes down the road that you were just re- referring to. It isn't easy, and with each child, we have to learn how do we remain calm, and what does it take to be, to bring this child to calm. Some children you cannot touch, and many uh, special needs, especially autistic children, you can't touch them. They won't let you, but there are are, are are sounds, are, are, there's music, there are there's attitudes, there's movement. Uh, there's so many things we have to learn, and there's nothing easy about any of it. But with each child, we, we have to take the time to learn that and then practice it consistently. I, my heart goes out to, to uh, these people because uh, they're they're fighting a battle that is way above what what anybody who hasn't been there can understand. Right. And Dr. Easter, you made a really good point of, uh, you know, talking about our attitudes. And I think there's a converse situation where um, we as parents, um, we bring our attitudes to our children. And, you know, from my own personal point of view and my, my personal experience is that when I have a bad day at work, I know that my child picks up on that. And yes. <laughs> um, my child becomes so much stressed um, from that. So, that's a very good point about it, too. Yes, and if, if the more tuned we are to that, and if we have a method that we follow to leave that outside the outside the home, leave it in the car, leave it in the trunk, whatever, where we have a process, and there are many that we can go through, and there's many good books on this, uh, of how to to bring you under your control so you're presenting in the way that, that you really want to rather than the way you're feeling. Our feelings are real, and we have to deal with them because they're connected to something important in us. But our feelings are not reliable. 
to tell us what is real. And so I, I want to I want to recognize my feelings. I know that I'm tired. Know that I'm frustrated. Know that I'm feeling maybe helpless and hopeless at the time. But those those are those are feelings, and and I I have to deal with them. But they don't necessarily tell me what reality is. And I want to be able to step back from that and decide what is the right behavior, what are, what's the right thought pattern, what's the right behavior, and then take myself through that discipline, and my feelings will have a tendency then to reshape and to support the new action that I'm making. So that, that takes some time. We need to give it to ourselves whether we shut the radio off on our way home from work or we have a spot over at a park and we can sit for a while and just bring ourselves into that kind of condition that that our family needs for us to have as we go in that door. You know, um, Dr. Shirley, a lot of parents find that, and not even parents, and just, you know, adults in general, um, find that escape through social media. And, you know, I saw this little cartoon the other day, and it was a picture of a little girl, and she's talking to an empty chair. And she says, um, um, my mom's imaginary friends are on Facebook. <laughs> and... Um, you know, and, it, and it, it really, I think that social media is playing a role in relationships. And, um, you know, I'd like to t- talk a little bit about how it's affecting relationships with our children um, for, the, for the good, for the better, and for the worse. And um, really the impact that it's having on relationships because a lot of people are ha- getting in a lot of trouble on they Facebook are. and Twitter and other places. So let, let's talk about that. Marion, I'd love to have that cartoon. That is so pointed. It's right I'll on. send it to you. It's adorable. I would appreciate it uh, because it, it does. It's, it's nailed the truth. I was, I was talking about earlier that when when a man and woman meet and and they have this erotic attraction that it creates uh, an intoxication that they literally live in uh, and they create the world and, and each other in in the way that they want them to be. Well, that's that's a that's a great need that is within us. Social media literally takes that place for many people. When they get on social media, then they can create the people uh, with whom that they develop a, a certain level of intimacy in their conversation and their their relationship, and they create them in the way that that they want them to be. And in that process, they create themselves. Uh, in the way that they want to be, because they can be who they want to be in the way they want to be uh, over over the social media. Now, that that particular erotic experience feels real. That's why that we write songs about passion and we use the word love. Uh, passion is not love. It's a wonderful, wonderful erotic feeling, but it, it's it's not love. Uh, love is actually a, a verb, and we, we can use it uh, as a noun, but it's actually action that's based upon commitment, whereas passion is this, this powerful feeling that we have. Uh, and, and so when, when we're in it, that's what feels real. And on the social media, it's, 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 it's a different kind of courtship where people get caught up in a community where they function on a level of competency and acceptance uh, that they do not have outside of the social media, and sometimes it, it's a pairing off with with uh, with another person, and a love affair develops that becomes as powerful and as 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 uh, containing as if they had met the person for real. And of course, then many times they they follow through, uh, and they do meet. And of course.
course, there's tremendous disasters that come from that. But yes, social media, uh, in in my in my work in dealing with marriages that are coming apart, I am more frequently, as as the months come and go, dealing with situations where the problem has been uh, brought to the surface through one or the other uh, being involved with another person through the social media. It's it's dangerous. It's tough. Yeah, and I think that um, it's also a way of escaping, um, having to interact with your partner. Um, you know, and, and also, you know, sometimes you're on, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of this, sometimes I'm on, on the computer and the next thing I know, you know, two hours have gone by. And, you know, it's taking time away, family time, and, you know, face-to-face talking time. And and you're right, and, it, and, and this, is, this is that ability of ours to get into... Uh, an artificial world that becomes more commanding and more soothing more, because we have more power in it. When when you're on that computer, you have a great deal of power that you do not have away from that computer as far as controlling what you're doing, who, what you're thinking about, who you're talking to, and what you're talking about, uh, and the feelings that are, are being developed. And so in that setting, uh, you were talking earlier about, about our need to have control well, this this offers us that kind of, of control, and and time does melt away. Then, when we feel the objection or the complaint coming from our our mate or the the, the rest of the family, or all of them, then we feel accused and all of those negative things. And so then it becomes it becomes a conflict with the, the the people who are real in our lives, defending against those. Uh, who are who are are really figments uh, of our imagination based upon the communication that we have on social media. Right. So I just Chuck, you're one of my imaginary friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes. One of um, Mary, man. One of many. One of many. Yeah. One of many. Um, so Chuck, do you have any um, you know final questions or comments on the interview tonight? Well, you know, I, I do have, and it's kind of a esoteric question. Um, but I think, you know, one of the important things, uh, in a relationship is forgiveness and, you know, Dr. Easterly, I wonder if you can kind of, uh, give us some tips on, uh, forgiveness. Yeah. Forgiveness is, is one of the, is one of the, the pivotal points that we, that all of us have in our life. If we learn how to use it, where we can we can change our life significantly away from the negative and into the positive. Most people think of forgiveness as a feeling or a desire. It is neither. Forgiveness is a decision that I make that's in my best interest, <clears throat> no matter how I feel or what I want. It's it's a it's it's a verbal con, uh, contract sometimes, including another person, but it's definitely a contract with myself where I choose to forgive the person or the people who have wronged me. And with that choice to forgive, I choose to live with them just as if they'd never done the wrong. And and, it, and this is the key to, to moving forward. If, if you wrong me and I choose to forgive you, that's, that's a commitment that I make, a contract that I make with myself, then I carry out that contract by choosing to live with you just as if you hadn't done that wrong, so that when my mind brings up, well, you know, Chuck did this to me or that, then I remind myself, Chuck is not guilty anymore. I have forgiven him and choose to relate just as if that had never happened. 
Now, again, this takes defying my powerful feelings. One of the one of the functions of our feelings, in fact, it's, it's the, really the primary function. Our feelings' primary function is to reinforce <clears throat> the thought and the behavior that produced it. So if I <clears throat> stick my finger in a light plug, I'm going to get some feelings out of that. And those feelings will remind me, hey, dummy, don't do that again. On the other hand, if I'm hungry and I eat a nice filet, I'm going to get some feelings out of that. So next time I'm hungry, my feelings are going to remind me, hey, go for that filet again. Now, so here's here here's where my, my feelings on the two extremes protect and and provide. In between, there is this vast mixture of the positive and the negative that, that that's involved. And so I want to remember that my feelings are designed to reinforce the thought and the behavior that produced it. So if I'm going, if I have a wrong behavior and wrong set of feelings, I have to, by force of my mind and my will, change that thinking and change that behavior and war against the feelings that want to bring in the old. Uh, now, and, and, th- and this is where we have the trouble with, with forgiveness, is because you hurt me, I'm going to want to remember that, and when that comes up, I'm going to want to have vengeance or some sort of retribution against you. But if I make remind myself I have forgiven, and I'm living with you just as if it never happened, I picture in my mind how I, how I felt with you before you did it, and I go back to living just like that. And in time, that my the, the feelings will new feelings will reinforce this new thought and the new behavior, so that forgiveness then becomes complete and continuous. Does that help? Yes. Yes, it does. And I think you know also important is to forgive yourself because we make mistakes. Yes. You know, we, parents we, 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 beat the themselves same thing with ourselves, Marianne. Very yeah, exactly so the important, same especially thing. special needs parents. I mean, you know, we, we, there's there's no book for this. They think there are books for this, but there's no books for this. And we make mistakes. You have to, you know, forgive yourself. A lot of parents get can't get past that. But, um, you know, Dr. Easterly, we're out of time, and I just want to say you really are just outstanding. I oh, am so thank thrilled you, that you joined us tonight. Well, and I I I I'm I count it a real privilege, and if I can ever be a service. You know how to get a hold of me. I would love to okay. do that. Okay. Oh, well, believe me, we'll be calling you to come back. We didn't get to half of what we wanted to talk about. Yeah, uh, yeah. But now I want to make sure that people know how to find you. Your website is www.marriagecounseling.com. Um, and I would like to invite you back because what I really want to talk about, we didn't even touch upon it, is um, the importance of marriage counseling and family therapy. And so many yes. people still have a shame about going and asking for help. So I would I'd like I'd love for you to come back and um, you know discuss too. that. And your website is terrific. You have to read his blog www.marriagecounseling/blog.com. It is fantastic. So right. thank you. I really appreciate you joining us and Chuck, you're hosting next week with Bruce Allen. And yeah, you're going to be talking fun. about a dad's point of view. This should be funny. <laughs> you're two very funny guys, so this should be a really good show. Um, well, I wish we you guys the best, and thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining thank you. us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, well, Chuck, as we end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Um, stop by www.thecoffeeclutch.com and we have a brand new network five fantastic shows um, catering to autism special needs, special education, law inclusion, you name it, they've got it that's specialneedstalkradio.com have a great week Chuck
Thank you. Good night. Take care. Good night, everybody.